You're listening to the Umami Podcast, conversations with producers, purveyors, and scholars exploring food choices we make as a culture. I'm Elise Ballard, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Chris Feifel. Thanks for being here. TNE Network. Hi, my name is Elise Ballard, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Chris Feifel. Today we're talking about wine, about what wine is exactly and why it matters now more than ever before. Wine is in the throes of a renaissance these days, in part fueled by the natural wine craze, those pet nat, skin contact, orange bottles with colorful labels and a frequent sidestepping of the appellation system. Some are really delicious, others are difficult. However you feel about them, they deserve a closer look. Our friend, Mark Papineau, has been filling our wine glasses all over the Seattle area for decades. He's the proprietor of Cantina Sauvage, a wine shop that recently opened in Melrose Market in Seattle, alongside Café Suleiman. Mark curates a selection of independent wines he identifies as unfucked with, meaning wines that have been only minimally altered by human intervention. This is a stark contrast with big-name, mass-produced wines that are manipulated to have a certain flavor profile or an exact level of alcohol. We're going to talk to Mark about what exactly natural wine is and whether it supplants the traditional wine system. We'll ask how he goes about selecting his wines and find out what questions to ask when you're looking. Let's pop into that conversation. out of the Ardèche um, in France. That's kind of deep Loire before you drop down into the Rhone. Um, and then a Burgundy, uh, Côte de Bourguignon from uh, Julian Altebert of um, his winery, I think he calls Sextant, uh, but he also just bottles under his name, which is here. And then uh, Domaine Vet, um, named after Domenico Vet who is the winemaker and proprietress or proprietor of uh, the domain in uh, Baudet-Provence. A little red blend from there. So you got uh, Grenache, Syrah, and Now, I'm immediately intimidated by that lineup, and I'm not sure where I can find myself in any of it, whether it's regions or what I want to pair it with, or if I need to ask, and Lisa, I, I know you, you've got a little bit more experience in this than I do, but like, uh, which one of them is dry? If I know we're not going to get to the bottom of it here, but if, if you can parse out um, maybe um, w- what would be a nice one to start with this conversation? Um, I don't know, maybe the coin swine. Uh, it's a little bit lighter. It's uh, it isn't a hundred percent dry. But maybe got a little bit of residual sugar, um, and it's probably the lightest. Although the uh, brasserie mosaic is also super light. There's only like three percent alcohol on this. It's very very minimal alcohol on that. Does the alcohol so- content? Sorry, sorry, Elise. But does the alcohol content? Um, influence if it's a dry wine and how would you describe a dry wine no uh, it doesn't influence it um higher alcohol means that everything's been fermented um you can have lower alcohol wines at nine percent that are not dry but you can have them dry as well just depending on where they come from um but higher alcohol is not an indicator of one uh, in that that it's a sweet wine or yeah. or not a dry wine. Okay. Um, although there are some that are eighteen percent and fortified. Does, if if I'm describing it as dry, how, is it um, a reason for uh, how it's leaving my palate or how it's staying in in you know on my tongue or what's what? We were having this discussion before <laughs> before you got here. Like I, I I don't I don't know, I'm not even sure what is dry to you. Yeah. So well, what, I know what you mean. Um, for me, and I think, well, kind of the broad definition of it is a, an absence of residual sugar is a dry wine. 
So no residual sugar, the wine is dry. Um, and then in that land, um, you can have some really ripe wines that, that are dry, but give um, a hint or suggestion of sweetness just because of the fruit that's in them, which can be super ripe. doesn't mean that there is residual sugar or that um, you're necessarily getting sweetness, but you can get this really ripe black fruit that can suggest sweetness just as you can have a dry wine it can also be a drying white wine like if it has uh tannins in it mm. you know and tannins are what you are encountering your gums um and sometimes on the back of your tongue depending on what kind they are where they set the spit out of you that's a drying mm. wine too but it's not um necessarily the hallmark of a dry wine talk to us a little bit about what is residual sugar what is the science of that well it's it's um not just a science in as much as um a tradition mm. like a lot of areas like in the mosul in in germany Sauternes in france um uh Vouvray in the loire all have designates of sugar levels or s residual sweetness Sauternes is a sweet wine. No, no other way. It's just, that's what it's made to be. It's a late harvest. It's a dessert wine. Yeah. Or you could drink it as an aperitif. You could drink it with foie gras. And, um, most people know of it as kind of a dessert wine, but it, it's pretty versatile too, but it's sweet for sure. You see something that's 13% alcohol, you can be pretty sure it's, it's dry. If it's 9% alcohol, it's probably not. It's probably got some residual sugar. Mm-hmm. Beautifully, beautifully articulated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm interested in this podcast um, to take a step back and become more elemental, more elementary about what is wine. It's very basic. Sorry. I know it's too big. Forget about enough. what natural wine is for a second. What is good wine? Let's start with that. What is good wine? Give us a picture of some of the vigneron you know who make a truly beautiful bottle of wine, and what makes it beautiful? Well, um, that's a hell of a question because I think I mean honestly, it is. To me, it's a subjective thing. I mean, wine is a very subjective thing. I can give you my opinion. It's only mine. But I do have a lot of producers who I think are just fantastic. And it's not just because they make great wine. It's because of the way they go about it, where they live, what they're doing, how much of it is their life. I mean, I, I carry a wine, for instance, um, that I would not usually carry, um, but it's from Walla Walla. It's in, like, 15, 16% alcohol wine. Um, and it's kind of like a passion project. I mean, I love this shit. This is the shit <laughs> that turns me on. Um, he goes out and harvests his own yeast. So he propagates yeast off birch bark, off gooseberries, off flowers, and then uses them in his ferments. It's amazing. It's wow. crazy shit. And, and really, it's, it's a natural way. I mean, if... Like, just to talk about yeast for a minute, um, you know, one of the hallmarks or one of the stepping stones or things to look at in natural wine is do they use um, ambient yeast versus industrial-made yeast? The reason for that being that um, through the last 50 or 60 years, um, there's been a lot of industrial yeast that's been used to get a certain kind of flavor in a wine, like Socially Nouveau, that yeast that goes in that, that's like fucking industrial-made yeast to make it taste like strawberries and watermelon. Um, and a lot of big producers will use it to kind of give a consistent flavor profile because their consumers are like, I like that Chardonnay, I want to do that Chardonnay again, I like this cab, I like... And erase as much as possible the natural variation that happens in a wine. And and it still happens in wines like that. Mm. Wine is a living thing, even when it's been fucking killed. It's so it's still not developing. just about like the 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 sort of like um, homogeneity 
doesn't just come from sulfites. It's, it comes from other things. Mm -hmm. What are sulfites, by the way? Well, they're, they're naturally occurring in a grape anyway. You can't get away from them. But the argument, and I think where a lot of people draw their battle lines, which I don't like to participate in, um, is do they sulfite the wine or do they not? And the dogmatic natural wine um, community would say zero, zero all the time, no matter what. If they use sulfite, anything from the outside that isn't naturally occurring, it's not a natural wine. I don't personally adhere to that. But what they do is they help stabilize the wine. They also help to mitigate any unwanted bacteria that may be extant in the winery or coming in at the bottling if things get in. And oftentimes, um, especially wine that's going to be coming overseas, even natural wine makers, while they might not sulfite their wine that stays on the continent, will sulfite their wine that's mm. coming to the States. Is, is that because of States. how long it takes to distribute when you're going overseas, or is it because of a change in environment? Um, All of that. And mm. does sulfiting versus natural wine um, influence how long that wine can be aged for and what window it has to be a viable, drinkable wine instead of turning into like an investment or something like that? It can, though that's not the law that it has to be that way. Um, it's not the law that it has to be that way? Exactly. Okay. What I mean is that there are ways to make a natural wine and still have a wine that is good for longevity. And I think really that has to do with the material that you're putting into it, for one, and also how clean you keep your winery and how, you know, insistent you are at bottling about you making sure that your bottles are clean and sterile. Um, There's some physical and artistical compounding effects that might happen in any of those stages. Exactly. And, like, I'm not saying that somebody who's just like, let it do what it does. And then I gently shepherd that mm. juice into bottle or into a vessel and into bottle, no matter what it is, it's going to be what I'm going to put out. I respect that. I think it's fucking awesome. And I don't think there's a producer of wine out there that is like, fuck you if you add sulfites. You know, they're just like, I'm just making the wine that I want to make, that I'm passionate about. And everybody else can do what they're doing too. It's, it's a community. Mm. I think it. This, the message gets lost in the kind of faddishness that has come mm. about with natural wine. But there is a currency, and maybe it is part of that faddishness, if I'm not mistaken, of um, how interrupted a natural process is in that the less, to use your term, fucked with a wine is, the more pure it is, the more valuable it is, the more natural it is. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, right or not, yes, I agree with that. Yes. And some of that fucked with the has to do with adding a sulfiding agent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that it doesn't just end there. Like, because industrial made wines that, that you see on a supermarket shelf. It's not just that they add sulfites. It's not just that they use industrial. Yeah, tell us yeast. about a tank wine. Like, what happens there? Well, I don't know exactly, but I do know that you'll never see an ingredient label on a wine. Ever. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you yeah. look at your cereal or whatever, you see all kinds of shit on there, right? That goes into making it crispy, keeping it crispy, holding the color. You'll never see that on a bottle of wine. And one of the things that Chad Stock did, if I, who, who I really respect, he was ahead of the game when he had his label Minimus, he was advocating for, for winemakers to put the ingredients on the label. They should be held to putting in what they're drinking. It's not just grapes. There's something more than grapes. There's more in there. And it can go in the form of enzymes. There's all kinds of things that are done in the winery to stabilize, to to uh, create a flavor profile, to, I mean, water it back if it's too alcoholic, if chapitalize it if it's too dry, if, if it can't get enough alcohol, which seems mm. to be increasingly less uh, 
needed these days as we warm up. But, mm. you know, that and that, you know, just those two things, watering back and chapelizing, I mean, it's been around forever and ever. Like back in the day when you couldn't get a ripe crop, you would add sugar to get that wine up to like the 12%. Otherwise, is that, it, is is that, that the chapitalizing? That's yeah. chapitalizing. Sorry, okay. adding sugars. And then the waterizing <clears throat> is the reverse of that? Exactly. If you've got like something super high alcohol, you want to lower the alcohol, you add water, takes it okay. down. Rather than picking early where the potential sugars are not there yet to mm. ferment, and then you get a lower alcohol wine. And then the argument behind that, <laughs> geek and yeah, 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 no, it's got to um, influence it. The, the, the argument behind that has been that, you know, a grape isn't ready to harvest until um, the pips, the seeds, have reached Varaison, I think it is. You can look it up. Varaison. Varaison, V-E-R-A-I-S-O-N, or that might just mean the ripening of the grape. But there is a, a word for the browning of the pip. Um, and it's similar to Verizon if it's not, but I don't know. <laughs> and the argument is that if those those pips are not brown, as in fully developed, mm. they make for bitter wine at pressing. They make for bitter wine. Yeah, they add the, a bitter component to the wine. I certainly have tasted mm -hmm. a grape with seeds in it where the seed is like green and has a mucusy weird thing around it. Maybe that's... Is, is there an industrial process or an artistic process to then maybe torture it into doing what you want? Mm -hmm. uh, no, I don't. I don't think there is, but maybe you, you know uh, the is idea. There a torturization well process. Yeah, you know the, the boiling of a not quite yet ripe uh, fruit. Browning. You know, we'll the still we we'll still bring out some like of the sugars. The acceleration in it. of yeah ripening or something like that. Because is that it, a thing? There's not really a way you can do it because it's a grape, right? What are you gonna do? Fucking put it in the oven? Well, maybe. Um. But really, the way it happens is you just leave it to ripen fully, mm. um, and then you press. What about the picking of the grape and those like vagina-like machines that mm -hmm. come through right? vine sections? And that's versus not there's that. a big argument for that not being allowed, and I would say there would most people who make natural wine do not do not use machine harvesters. Mm. Because when you machine harvest, you're, think of whatever is living on that vine. It's not like they're picking out the frogs and the snakes and mm. whatever might be extant in the vines. They're getting everything, including the leaves. They're shaking it off. It's all going into a bin. It's getting carried to the winery, and it all goes into the fermenter. That includes the frogs. It sure. includes the fucking snakes. It includes any bugs, mm. anything. Yeah. yeah. That um, seems so, like, how could they not dramatically influence the flavor of a wine if everything goes into it versus cutting off just the precious, perfectly ripened mm -hmm. section of grape? But when I was in, in France in 2019, I went to pick some grapes, and these were grapes that, were, that needed to be preciously, like, cut you know, mm -hmm. cluster Co by coddled cluster. grapes. I think I think it's coddled, coddled grapes. I think it's the term. They <laughs> talked about uh, the machine sort of cultivating, and based on what I saw, I, I couldn't imagine how that wouldn't dramatically change the flavor. Sure, the I, cutting I, of the perfect. But here's the thing, too: is is like most machine harvesting is going into wines that are going to large tanks on tank farms. Mm. They're making cheap grocery store wine, and all those wines have all kinds of shit in them to mitigate the problems extant in crushing wildlife <laughs> in, in your mind. Well, it, I mean, we're talking about byproduct, and we, and, and in some of our conversations through this podcast, we've crossed over with uh, some sort of farming mechanism, which is happening either on land or in the water, and the byproduct that is coming with the industrialization of that process. Mm. Um, You're saying like every conversation on the Umami podcast has been about that. I'm noticing a trend. Yeah. That it, it, damn, it, does, right. it does come up from time to time here. Um, and of course, how could that not influence? And, you know, as a small wine farm, I imagine you can have X amount of people to help you perfectly cut 
your you know your grapes and and your produce i, I don't know how to make wine it's going to be obvious here um but as soon as you scale up there's going to be those concessions that need to be made and how long those concessions are influencing the flavor profile and how long you can extend that flavor profile all with additives or counterbalances or so has to affect the product i don't have a palate enough to uh, you know sense this bottle of wine from the store at this price point and honestly that's where i kind of use my um, regulatory input is when i'm standing there i go that's too cheap to be good that's that seems this 23 dollar bottle of wine seems like most of the people cared in the in the making of this but there's definitely some snakes in here um is there a way that we can decipher when we're in a store that maybe doesn't specialize in selling wine how to find a wine that's worth uh you know buying um yes uh and i to me if you care then you're not in a grocery store buying wine you're probably Mm. going to a shop but what i mean is you know especially now what really the consumer, somebody who truly wants to try something different or um, know why a wine is this price or not or what's in it, it's you should go to a place where they know their wine. They buy their own wine, and they're there for that, to answer those questions. Why is this bottle, $23 bottle of wine worth 23 Is it, you know, is it industrial made? Is it not? Um, but, you know, going into a place, say, well, like most Safeways or those wines are all, you know, you're getting an eight ninety nine liter of something. That's industrially made wine. Mm. That is not. The price is an indicator. Also, is it that being in a place as big as something like Safeway or Costco or Trader Joe's, they have to be producing on a scale that is impossible to manage uh, natural, whatever that means, production. Mm-hmm. Am I right about that? I think so. I mean. For, I would say, 99% of those producers that you're finding in Costco are not, they're not going to be naturally made wines. Um, and, like, I, I'm just thinking of what I see in Costco. And Costco, to their credit or discredit, I don't know which, will purchase a whole, like, vintage, a whole of from one producer. that and that and producer may not be it, it it could be really good wine um that is it going to be all natural no there's no way agreed no way um but there's gradations of it you know like they carry i think they've had dunham wines those are great wines in their way they're they're not 100 percent natural but they're also hand harvested handmade they're you know state wines so i don't want to totally throw Every producer that works with Costco under the bus. But well, by and large, yeah, that's the case. Or large grocery store chains, yeah. I think that's what we're dancing on a little bit here is wine, getting into wine, feeling like you have an educated idea of what you want to order. There's so many variables that are happening. Um, it feels like it's tough to just step into the stream and say, well, I like this, you know, I like this purveyor and I'll, I'll drink this. I think that's one of the barriers for people to get into confidently ordering something. And it le- lends me to feeling like if you're ever in that situation, just ask the professional. Ask the professional and say, I wanna eat this and I'd like to have a, a nice glass of wine. Help me, hel- help me walk through these waters. Just ask, stop pretending you know. Most people don't know. Most people walk in with a few buzzwords they've been told to say, but they don't know. And I want us to, I want this podcast to be about that, before those people, people to come away with this, listening to this podcast being like, oh, I should ask next time I'm in a wine shop, I, I should ask or at a restaurant. Agreed. I, I, that's, I mean, that's what I'm doing it for. Mm. is to help people figure out what they like and provide them with something that's awesome. That's the whole reason you do it.
for me. Here's the other fucking thing I love is, is that things that have a story, you know, as a purveyor and as a buyer, I love to hear stories about people mm. like families that have interesting things to say about why they do what they do, mm. how long they've been doing it, um, where they've come from to get there. Mm. I think that's all a huge part of it. And that to me is what informs a wine because I'm not going to say, well, I will say that comes out in the wine to me. Somebody's, somebody's struggle, somebody's story, somebody's passion goes into the making of that wine. They have to make a thousand fucking decisions in the process. When do they pick? When do they go out to pick? What, how much do they pick? You know, what are they going to put it in? How are they going to crush it? All those things are informed to me. If it's just a scientific, you know, well, it's not reached this sugar level yet. The mm. spectrometer's not showing the right thing. Not to say that those are invalid. They are. And I'm not to say that passionate people don't use technical know-how. But in the end, it, I feel like it comes down to their decision and the feeling of when it's right to do something. And I think that it, it comes through in the wine. Mm. So, um, that perhaps is a good opportunity to talk about the appellation system. And, uh, you know, I've noticed that, um, a lot of natural wines are outside that system. Mm -hmm. Why is that? And tell us a little bit about that, that system. Well, the appellation system came into being. You know, I think the first was um, actually Chateau Neuf du Pop was the first mm. AOC wine, Appalachian system wine. Um, and that came into being, I think, in the late 20s. <clears throat> and I think at that time and throughout a lot of this progressing years, there was a good reason for it. Um, it used to be that wine was brought in from Italy to to uh, fortify a wine, to give it more body, to, to, to get the alcohol levels up. Wine was brought in from the south of France to go into Burgundy so that it wasn't just Pinot Noir, it could also mm. be Syrah, Grenache, and all a number of things. Not to say it's a bad thing, whatever. Is, is Champagne a good example of why there is an Appalachian system? I mean, uh, being that, you know, it used to be that anybody could call a bubbly wine a Champagne and then with Appalachians, no, you have to be from the Champagne region. That is, that's a little bit, not only is it AOC or AOP, um, it's also a trademark. Oh, okay. The Champagne okay. name is trademarked. The only people that don't adhere to it are the Americans and maybe oh, some folks okay. in, the, in okay. South America or Australia. But Somebody here, here at my New Year's Eve party had a bottle of champagne that was like Kirkland sig signature <laughs> bread. It just said champagne that was all it said. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Is that relevant? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I've seen it. Tank farming, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But the AOC system, I mean, has kind of, like anything, as I think you're seeing in natural wine now, it's outgrown its usefulness. What it was started to help and did help, it's now hindering. Mm. So people who are making wine in the Loire Valley out of Cab Franc, they make it as Vin de France because they don't adhere to the AOC laws. What those are, I don't know. But I can tell you that um, in Chateau Neuf du Pape, a wine has to be at least 14% alcohol before it can be called Chateau Neuf du Pape. It has a minimum alcohol level of 14%. Um, and in the, the, that's just an example of some of the kind of archaic thinking that goes behind that. And so a lot of producers, and it costs money to be in the AOC. Okay. It's not cheap. You, I think you, you pay some dues to get into that. A lot of hoops if to you jump through. You pay to and... have somebody come inspect your wine. Mm. So Certified. why would you want to fucking do that? Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, like... It's antithetical to me to, mm. to what natural wine is, right? Why the fuck do you need somebody to tell you 
you know, if it passes this or that. These and, traditional and, standards. Of- exactly. It, it's bullshit. But, and, and it also makes it mm. more necessary mm. for you to know your producer. Mm. And so you're even not more dependent, but the purveyor of that bottle is even more useful. Did you see a bottle of wine? It's red. It says Van de France. It could have come from anywhere. You don't know. <clears throat> Your friendly neighborhood fucking purveyor can tell you. <laughs> oh, let me tell you. I got the word right here for you. I can tell you. Um, what do you think is the reason for, it seems to me, that little independent bottle shops have sprouted throughout at least the U.S., in the past five, nine years? Like, why is that? What, what, what caused that resurgence? Well, I don't know if it's a resurgence or if it's a brand new thing. Mm. Um, but what I do think is that wine has been, <clears throat> for in, in the best way, um, brought into the popular mind you know mm. like a lot of people will go out and buy a bottle instead of buying a beer they might Why have a glass that, of wine instead think? of a vodka soda um <clears throat> well that's a really good question is it because well from what i think with the advent of social media huge 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 thing people are telling their stories via video um um Winemakers and purveyors, and yeah, they they can reach a much wider audience. I also think it's a it may be a function of an evening. So if mm. if there's a couple, instead of saying let's split a six pack, we can say we'll do let's have a bottle tonight, and maybe two in the night. But it's a way it's a way to govern kind of uh you know mm. your evening. A, a bottle of wine between two people. As far as lubricating a night and mm. having, you know, something good to eat, that does it. You know when you crack the second bottle. But with uh, some other smaller distributions, beers and, and, and pouring yourself whiskeys or so, it's a slippery slope because they, I've had three beers, but I've, they're only Budweiser. And, and I've had, but when you, when you kind of call out a bottle, you almost frame the evening. I think that, mm. that's part of the, part of the, yeah, maybe there's a the really rise to it. It's a really good point. Mm. Yeah, so it's like it's like um a safer option. We're going to stay in. Just... We're going to have a bottle of wine, make some dinner, and you know if you're cracking the second, you're mm. you're upping the you you're stepping into another realm, you know? <laughs> One bottle of wine, that's the evening. We're all fine. We can all go to work tomorrow. Two bottles of wine. Questionable. Uh, yeah, it's questionable. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, can you call in late and or? Uh, so many evenings where couldn't help crack in the second sh- and maybe drinking most of it. I don't know. Well, I mean, the social aspect to sharing a bottle of wine or sharing, sharing a fermented drink and, and, you know, all the variety that Mark brought us here. Um, there is a ritual to it. There's yeah. obviously a history to it. Yeah. And those are some of the mystiques that I, I'm intrigued by. Um, how long can a natural wine stay good on the shelf? Or have you had, a, you know, a great wine that was just past its time? You know, what was your, what was your the oldest bottle, uh, you know, that you've ever drank that you, you just missed where it was, uh, it was good? And you're like, oh, okay, this, this turned, but this, would, this was something six years ago. Yeah, what in general about aging a natural wine? Versus a conventional, conventional. yeah. Man, um, I think a lot of people would say that you can't age a natural wine, that it's good for a few years and then it's just going to kind of fall apart. And, and I think that that can be true. Sorry, you introduced us to Jared Hottie mm-hmm. and we had him on the show. He was an episode I listened to that one a little bit today too okay good Uh, good good and he said I make my wines to last for you know my overall goal is to make them last for a hundred years yeah possible possible 
Um, I wouldn't say all of his wines will last 100 years. There's no fucking way. But, <laughs> but I do know the wines that he's thinking of when he says that. And mm. that's like his premier cuvee, that mm. Chardonnay that he makes, which is pretty fucking amazing. It's like drinks on a quality level of a Cru Burgundy. Mm. Um, and will that wine make it for 100 years? Mm, probably not. But. Point being is that wine will definitely make it for 25, 30 years again mm. if it's kept properly. So he has some, but his other like plein air and um, you know, Nebbioso, those aren't, those aren't ones that'll last on reefs, but they're also not made to last. They're, they're made to be drunk today mm. in the next year, the next two years. Um, so are there natural wines that can stand the test of time? I think so, yeah. Um, but the thing is too... <laughs> There have been wines that are being naturally made long before now. Mm. This is one of them like this. I'm not trying to plug this woman, mm. but this is um, Domaine Vet, her current release. It's a 2014. Nobody releases a wine. Hardly anybody will release a wine from that vintage as their current release. 2014. That means that what's 14? Wow. Now it's 24. Just came out. 10 years old. So... How has it been setting for that long, 2014 to now? Where's it been? In a tank? In a uh, bottle? No, in <laughs> bottle. Yeah, they okay. don't. I mean, okay. they'll bottle it the following spring, but then they'll let the bottle sit. Champagne, on the other hand, if they're doing vintage champagne, um, may keep that in barrel or in tank mm. and then bottle as needed. Um, and that's actually an, a, an interesting thing to know is you can actually see the bottling date if you know what you're looking for on a champagne label. Mm. And it's, it's interesting. It gives you an idea. And if you see two of the same cuvee with two different bottling dates, you should pick them both up. And then you get to taste how different they are. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. Crazy. yeah. Anyway, but this has been in bottle, like probably since the following spring or maybe the next year. Um, and it was just released in the last year. And it's a naturally made wine. Okay. She probably does use some sulfites of bottling. And are, are sulfites, sulfites like, uh, uh, what did we say, MSG, Madison Square Garden? The new, <laughs> the new MSG. We were wondering about that. You know, the, the Umami podcast is the name of this show. Umami is inextricably associated with MSG. Is sulfite the new Umami? MSG? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but but what? How do you add sulfites to it? It, it? Does it come in a bag? Is it a, you know you take three scoops for for this? Obviously, it's measured and metered and, and temperature regulated. Yeah. But is it literally I, an additive? I'm pretty sure it comes in a powdered form, and you add it, and it dissolves. It goes into solution, <laughs> and it and, says everything will be good for the next ten years. Well, not necessarily. I mean, like somebody like this person will tell you how many parts per million they put in in sulfur. Um, and a lot of things, you know, a lot of people have problems with sulfites in big amounts. That they're allergic to them. They give them headaches. A lot of people won't drink red wine anymore because of the sulfites, they say, or because of the phenolics. Um, but in, in most cases, if you're making wine as, as unfucked with as possible, you're going to put as little as you can. Just to stabilize that wine. Mm -hmm. Minimal intervention. Exact. Exact. And that is kind of unfucked with is like what we're going to name this episode. That's great. And which is the, you, that's your term. That's what you've come up with. That you've, your whole career you've been talking about unfucked with wine. Talk a little bit more about that. The way I got into unfucked with wine was more because I was pairing wine with food, number one was, you know, I was working at the Corson building in Georgetown with Matt, um, Dylan, and he never said, he never gave me any limits to what I paired with, never any, none of that. He was like, never said anything. I just did what I want. And the more I paired food with wine, the more I tasted wine that I was thinking might go with food, the further away from the conventionally made wines I was moving. Not to say there weren't a bunch that I did, um, but the expressiveness of these wines was just 
to me, amazing. I mean, they, they, a wine that has in its way the same thing that a food has. I mean, a good wine does anyway. It has a little of this, a little of that. You can call them out on their own. They're beautiful in their way. They all come together and they work. They work really well. Um, and that's how I kind of went in that direction. And when we opened Bar Ferdinand, it went even more so. And it took me a long time to really call the fucking distributors that would come by to sell me shit. And I don't mean shit. They're just like this great glass poor price. And, and at first, maybe that was fine. But at some point, I was like, I don't want this shit anymore. Don't bring it. Bring me something that has something to say that will work, that is fucking, you know, got something to it. I don't want a wine just because it's $9 a bottle and it's red mm -hmm. and it's light or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just the way it went. I never was like, I'm doing natural wine now. <laughs> it wasn't like that. Hey, but I did right. find that those were the producers who were like blowing my mind. Yeah. But uh, what's the direction to take, though, with pairing wines? Um, to bring this back, uh, you know, a few yeah. minutes ago when you had mentioned it. Um, I have no clue other than red wine doesn't go with fish. And uh, if I, you know, if I'm going to eat a steak at a nice restaurant and I ask for a glass of wine, um, I'm probably going to go with a red wine there somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've got a slight understanding about sweetness and if it's time to be sweet or if, uh, if I want something more base. But what, what is there a guideline? Is there, is there a baseline to pair uh, anything with your with what you're eating how or you is even, the answer even just like ask just yeah, always yeah. How ask do you even approach it don't pretend you know just always i imagine ask. it goes with as a professional that's gonna be my default from here on out i you know what yes and no i think good ask a professional okay but also explore on your own like maybe you don't just get one glass of wine with that steak mm. maybe you get that fucking big syrah or cabernet and then maybe you get like um a burgundy, a white burgundy. See what that tastes like. Maybe you do get like a a, a residually uh, a residually sweet wine. Um, there's plenty of like rich white wines, in my opinion, that can work with red meat. It's hard to beat grills, grill marks. Grill marks are tough. It's true. <laughs> um, and and in that case, yeah, I I definitely usually err towards something like a, a Syrah or a Bordeaux. But it's not a it's not a fucking law. You know, and you can pair red wine with fish. I believe in it, hundred percent. Um, chill it down. You have a drink of chilled Gamay with with some uh, like Chopino. You know, uh, so good, so good. Um, so there's no law, and that was the thing is is I, <laughs> for one, I never took a class on how to pair food with wine. Ever. And, and I went through sommelier training. I'm not, I came into this business through the classical training side. I went through levels of sommelier training. I ran wine programs at hotels. So it's not like I've always been doing this. Um, but what the fucking good thing about that was is that it gave me the framework to eventually say, fuck this. It's not what I want. The, what I worry about for people coming into wine is that they drink these orange wines or something super volatile, and they're like, this is good fucking wine. And I'm not to say it's not good wine, <laughs> but there is a whole world out there that you're missing if you just say, I only drink natural wine. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, and Because I, not every wine bothers to identify itself as such. In fact, maybe they're... Like, like this right here naturally made this is naturally made wine from back before and you know the tradition here is you know before the 50s a lot of wines were natural most it's with industrialization and the commodification and wanting to get wine into bigger markets and get it across the sea that you started having to stabilize shit that you started having to create fucking um Uniform taste. Mm -hmm. So all wine used want. to be natural wine. At one point, yeah. Yes, indeed. So this is nothing new. It's not new. Right. You're going back to 
wine before time in some ways, and not that long ago. Like uh, Claude Roger, a producer in the Loire Valley. Fucking expensive wine. Really well made. Never always made their wines naturally. That was their tradition. Like Henri Bonneau in, in, in Chateauneuf. Slob made his wine spit on the floor. His winery, his, his barrel room, reputedly covered in black mold. But he had the <laughs> biome to make brilliant wine. That's natural wine. Wow. wow. Was he like, this black mold needs to be here? Yeah. He fucking dropped spit on the floor. He never cleaned. Um, and his wines were amazing. Wow. And Claude Roger, another one. When they uh, started getting recognition in later years, with the advent of natural wine, they're asked about, so in, in so many words, like, so how does it feel, you know, now that, how does it feel to have this notoriety for making these natural wines? And what do you do? Like, we just make wine the way we just make always wine. made it. <laughs> that's, and that's it right there. Where were you guys yesterday when I was still here doing this? Exactly. <laughs> so it, it, it may be true that natural wine, labeled as such, is pretty much an American phenomenon. Like, the French don't, the French may not need to know that something is natural because they may assume that if it has an appellation such as Côte du Rhône or Beaujolais or whatever, that it is natural because it should be. Mm. Am I right about that? I don't know. I would say that there's definitely a natural wine identifying natural wine bars in France, for sure, that carry wines only naturally made. Okay. Um, and that that is much more integrated into everyday life there. Okay. Yes. Um, it's not such a polarizing mm. term. Okay. Natural wine in here in the United States or in any hip-ass little bar you go to is a polarizing thing. Is, is, is it naturally made? Or in, in Europe, you know, there are definitely natural wine bars, but I think it's more of an opinion like, of, of course it's natural. Mm, we're right. just going get back to some things that were here before i've wondered about i'm from the tiny mountain west state of utah and in utah the government controls all the liquor that comes in including the wine and you can only procure liquor at a state-run liquor store including wine, or at special restaurants. But um, it all runs through the state. And so my question is, could they possibly have natural wine? In the Seems state of me, Utah? No, because they have to have a scale to supply to all of the state liquor stores. They would have to be purchasing from someone who is large enough to be mm. able to carry that volume. Right. What do you think about the logic? Um. I see what you mean. Uh, I would say that because it's it's true in Quebec too that mm. the it's a state-run system the wine, um, but different state-run stores have different wines because mm. each each state-run store can approach the government about what they want to bring in. I don't know if it's the same mm. in, in Utah. So it might be that there's a state-run store with a manager there that's like into it and secures through a, an importer and says, I want this to come in and stay with it. So mm -hmm. Maybe. Possibly. <clears throat> I imagine that there are a whole bunch of states in this country that are have state-run, sure. state-controlled liquor boards, and there's probably an amalgam of all of them and a purchasing body yeah, so it really like, has to be big and it really has to be major to you're like a major food purveyor for restaurants and and any yeah. uh, you know other system that has a, a gatekeeper as far as what they can bring in and yeah. sell yeah you know? so you might get like a joseph juan but you're not going to get you're not right. going to get you know great ink, for example <laughs> right. or yeah <laughs> yeah 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 you're probably right and interestingly um, 
That's a big question is in, in my business, we <clears throat> in Seattle or to a degree, or I would imagine anybody in any city that isn't New York, San Francisco, Portland, maybe, or Los Angeles, like how the fuck do we get these wines? Mm. Why the fuck is they all just getting bottlenecked in New York? In New York, right? And never makes it out here. Um, and that also creates the, the mystique of hard to get. I really want it. You know, um, <laughs> how does it happen? Well, it How does do make they it not out here. all end in New York. Well, because increasingly, you know, distributorships don't want to just stay in one place. And especially a lot of the people who they represent are like, yeah, I don't want just my wine just to be drunk in New York. And I would love to sell it in Chicago or Seattle or, and, and, um, is there enough to go around? No, like, shit. I get allotments of things sometimes. It's like six bottles mm. that came to the market. Well, maybe three cases came to Seattle and my allotment is three bottles or six bottles and another six goes over here or whatever. But supply in natural wine, it's not easy. Excuse me. And that is where like the larger groups are getting on the bandwagon. Mm. So there are natural wines being made by Big ass winemakers these days, big ass places, um, on an industrial level, mm. calling themselves natural. Are they? I, I don't know. Maybe they are. But, but I would no never buy because it defeats the purpose. Why do you fucking want natural wine from a fucking tank farm? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't. It's, the it's point Nestle, of it is Nestle is that, company selling water. Exactly. Mm. Like I don't want Nestle water or Nestle anything mm. for that matter. But this is the thing right there. Is is why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Because I like working with the small people. I like working with the people who are super into what they're doing. It's not about selling all their wine. They're, they're not about trying to make their buck. I mean, everybody wants to make a living. I'd like to make a living. I mean, I, I have a shop. Um, do I want to open three? Not really. Mm. Um, but I would like to be able to make a living and be present in my space to do what I do. Well, know? let's talk about your space. Let's talk about your new space. Um, so Cantina Sauvage, what well, we just opened about almost seven weeks ago now, just after Thanksgiving, with my friend and I call him a co co compatriot. And, um, and he really is. Um, he does the food and I do the wine. He's Cafe Suleiman. I'm Cantina Sauvage. And we operate out of the space together. And um, honestly, <laughs> these last several weeks have been just insane. Not, not like, I mean, you're so busy, I don't mean it that way. What I mean is mm -hmm. insane how good it's been. So good. Because it's just he and I. Nobody, mm -hmm. like, we just do what we want. And people are receptive to it. Mm. Um, will it be sustainable down the road? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, but right now we are just so excited about what we're doing. Mm. Like we get done at work at night and we're like, boom, <laughs> quick a glass and we're like, here's to well us. Done. This is our space. <laughs> Ours. Such a great space. And Cafe Suleiman is, is, would you call that Arabic cuisine, like pan-Arabic, something like uh, that? Kind of a Levantine, Levantine. Levantine, okay. Yeah, so there's Arabic. So good. Yeah. And it's in Melrose Market, which is in a, a legendary as you space. Say, it's in a bit of a renaissance. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, a renaissance. <laughs> yes. That's why you got to say it. Not to want you want to see in a bit of a renaissance. <laughs> But um, yeah, and we feel like uh, we're helping to revitalize that mm. market and that whole block. Um, we're really excited to be there. It's great that just down the street on Pike Street, no, Pine Street, is the new convention center. Mm -hmm. So a lot of building happen happening along there. Yeah. And it just seems like Capitol Hill is being revitalized in a lot of ways. 
being revitalized and revitalizing itself. I mean, there are some beautiful restaurants along there. But Melrose Market in particular, I think went through a, took a hit for a while. Yeah. Your place, Bar Ferdinand, was originally in the very spot that you are now, right? Yeah. That's a huge deal to me. You moved up to Chalk. How, how do you settle yeah. with that? Are you, are you excited to be back, like a you know a return to a return to grounds or for sure? There's nice. a lot of that. Um, and honestly, like when um, when we closed Barford and particularly that Barford and the lower space in Melrose, um, and I actually opened Cantina Sauvage like months later. Like in New Year's Day of eighteen, we closed in seventeen. Um, and when I opened Cantina Sauvage, um, I was like, I really want to remove the wine experience from the food and wine experience um, because mm. the things the that wine it, experience from the food and wine experience, yeah. Okay. Um, and to kind of push the idea um, or to illuminate the idea of wine as not a thing of its own. It's, it's not just the wine. It's about who made the wine like we were talking about earlier. Um, <clears throat> it's also what the wine engenders as far as conversation and, 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 and ideas and obviously <laughs> drunkenness. Um, hmm. But really to kind of take it out of that, like, I don't know, it just felt the confines of food and wine, the restaurant experience, the mm. bar experience. Um, and that's why I was doing events out of my apartment and in other mm. people's floral studios, like Nisha's place at Flourish and at, you know, doing pop-ups more or less. Um, but wanting to have the producers there to talk about their wine and why it matters and why it's so fucking awesome and have these people that get to meet each other. And not have to only talk about it in the context of the food that was being served. Mm -hmm. or exactly. Even though this goes well with this. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And they're artists. Winemakers mm. in their way are artists. And to bring people in who our artists themselves in whatever form, like it just, mm. it's a natural. So that's why I opened and started Bar Ferdinand, but then the pandemic hit, it turned into a online, not even online. I was just sending out emails and delivering to people, mm -hmm. um, but doing the write-ups. I love writing. Was, was that sustainable for, through the pandemic? Was that sustainable for how many months, year? It was about a year, maybe a year and a half. Yeah. And uh, those were so far probably the best year I had in business. Really? Yeah. Was it because there was a lot of intentional clients, a lot of yeah. intentional customers who were seeking you out in, in this weird time? Or A little bit of both. Mm. Um, people who were couldn't go out and I was providing like not just wine, but like six of a certain kind of five mm. or whatever, writing them up and delivering them to their homes. Are you um, continuing that now? Yeah. Your mailing list. Yeah. Um, I haven't written a lot lately, as you would know, because since opening this, um, it's really kind of taken away from, you know, <laughs> sitting in front of the computer and write. Keeps you busy. Um, but hopefully, I'm hoping that as things settle out, that will um, return. I definitely will do some kind of a bottle club, I think, for the bar and not sure what form it will take. It seems like you enjoyed that connection, though, during during the pandemic times when you were trying to uh, adjust having that um, outreach and maybe reciprocal um, conversations that you're having with patrons instead of just uh, there was a brown hair person who came in here for, for dinner in a yeah. glass. Yeah. Hanging out, talking to them on their porch for a while. Mm. <laughs> yeah, neat. It's super sweet, you know, <laughs> or dropping their wine off and taking a picture of it and texting it to them. Mm. With a little heart on, or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. That makes it, you know, gives you gives them and yourself that touch and reason to be doing what you're doing. Well, it's, um, it's like the artist's hand in the making of the wine, the artist's hand in, in purveying the wine. Where do you think, so in your life, uh, growing up or uh, you know, whenever, um, that you started realizing you had a penchant for going down this kind of rabbit hole? 
um, because you're obviously studied and mm. you have a direction and a drive that's taking you down this direction. Um, I'm going to use direction a few more times in this description. <laughs> direction, but, but, direction, yeah, direction. <laughs> but I mean, is is this a, a quirk of yours you had, you know, uh, growing up or did something light your fire to, to get you into this um, direction? There were two things that happened. The first of which is like a quirk that I was born with, but that didn't have to do with, it didn't have to do with wine. It had more to do with um, taking care of people like being, I've always been in the restaurant business, even when I was in high school, I went to college in the restaurant business. Um, but my bent has always been to take care of people. That's why I have like 10,000 children. I know I have five, five kids. I have five kids. And I've been a father since I was 22 years old, right? Here I am, 58. And, I, and I've been a father since I was 22. Because I, I enjoy being responsible. Mm. Well, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And the next thing was when I was in the business, you know, I was working at Campania in Seattle, downtown. And if you know the restaurant scene in, in Seattle, Campania was like one of a kind. It was kind of a first in its genre, like fine dining, very French specific. Yeah. And they had an owner and Maitre D, Peter Lewis, that guy was a fucking shit. He could would look at you in the eye, and you were the most important person in the world. You were just like, thank you, thank you so much. I'll sit wherever you want. Um, and he was a huge inspiration for me. And he, I would call my first real mentor. And not only that, they were into wine at Campania, mm. and that's where I started learning about wine. And that was in 1998. And before that, I didn't even know what cork wine was. I worked at Setiam, another sweet mm, cafe. On Broadway. Um, well, I worked at that and the one in Belltown, which was oh. his first. Anyway, uh, I thought I knew my shit, having worked for Kurt. Because Kurt's another one of those kind of savants in, mm. in like putting things together and making it look beautiful. Timmermeister. Or Timmermeister. Um, but when I work, went to work for Peter, I started to learn about wine. Mm. And that's where I had like my, you know, they say, what was your aha moment with wine? <laughs> um, and I did have one. And it was with a bottle of Collier, which is a little appellation in the Cote de Roussillon. And it's a Grenache dominant. I was like drinking it after work one night, just had a sip. And, and all of a sudden it just hit me. And the thing is, it doesn't hit you like good wine isn't about the wine. It's everything. Mm. you're sitting outside you have a cigarette mm -hmm. it's the end of a long night it's a summer night what the and a bottle you know you have this bottle and mixes with your cigarette the smoke from your cigarette mm. the garlic from your breath the smell of the ocean coming mm. up over the top all of those mm. things go into mm. that thing it's not just about the wine it's never i mean not would say never but Oh, <clears throat> that's to me, you know, what makes mine so magical. That is so well said. I, I love that. All of the sort of like um, environmental factors that go into what you taste that night, the situational factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A shitty Cote d'Iron tastes great in Paris on a sidewalk cafe. Not so much when you bought it from the fucking PCC and you took it off. <laughs> Even less so when you bought it from a gas station in the back of Camel Lights or something. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, well, I think that's really um, a great place to end. Um, and I, um, I want to end this with just a word about your wine shop and why wine shops like yours are really important and new. Yes, we've had wine shops before. Yes, we've had McCarthy and Shearing and all of that, but this is new. This seems to be a trend that's happening, and I want our listeners to notice that there are sweet little bottle shops sprouting up all over. Yeah, thank you. And, and that's true. And I think, you know, it's important to... To support, you know, your small, not just wine shops, but businesses, butchers, um, 
anybody that's just doing something and they that's what they do it's their shop they make t-shirts or they make unagiri next door to mm-hmm. us or whatever it is those people are there for because it's passion they're not there to make money because they wouldn't be there They'd be fucking working for Amazon or some right. shit, right? It's not about the money. Just like so much better an experience than Costco or Trader Joe's or whatever. And yeah, that happens too, I guess. But mm, I love that local experience walking into your wine shop and shops like it. Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> I'm pointing at you right now, looking intently at you. <laughs> cool. Well, um, the Umami podcast is produced by TNE Networks. Find us anywhere you get podcasts and on Instagram at the Umami podcast. Also, don't forget to check out our website where you can find tons more resources about today's subject. While you're there, consider supporting us with a small monthly donation or one-time gift. And please tell a friend about us. You're listening to the TNE Network. Network.